Now, we're going to talk about radical grace. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 19. And uh, it's interesting because scientists tell us that almost everything in this world can be reduced to a mathematical equation. So they tell us things like, of course, the speed of light can be calculated with a mathematical equation. Einstein did that. And uh, converting Fahrenheit to Celsius, that's a mathematical equation. Uh, somebody was telling me that they saw the mathematical equation for how a spring works and says it's about 10 pages of math to, d to describe why a spring works the way a spring works. But I was thinking it would be sort of interesting, and other people have thought this too, what if you could reduce just the issues of life to a math equation, and somebody's actually done that. So we want to show you some of these uh, life math equations. Okay, so here's the first one. Death equals nap plus forever, right? Okay, you're going to get this pretty good. All right, here. Credit card equals I can't afford it minus I can't afford it. Speed bump equals slow down plus too late. <laughs> Life insur insurance equals God forbid plus jackpot. And finally, my favorite, honeymoon equals vacation plus you-know-what squared. All right. So now, wouldn't it be interesting, as we're starting 2012, if we could come up with some kind of math equation or some kind of equation that would guarantee that we would get ahead, that would guarantee that at the end of this year, as we settle into 2013, that we're not sitting in the exact same place that we're sitting now, that our life has made progress, that the goals that we've set have actually started to be obtained, that some of the habits that we want to break, that we've broken, that some of the habits we want to keep, that we're keeping, that overall we would say this has been a good year, a good year, because I have moved forward. And I was just thinking, if you were going to put an equation like that together, what would be some of the things that would be in that equation? And uh, I think, like, one thing that would probably be in that equation, and I want you guys to play, so let me give you an idea. I think, like, for instance, hard work probably needs to be in that equation somewhere. You're going to put hard work in if you want to get that. Uh, maybe another thing is relationships with people who can help you relationships with people that sort of push you forward. That would probably go into that equation. What are some other things that you think of that if you wanted to have success this year, if you wanted to move ahead, you'd say, this should probably go into the equation? Prayer. Prayer. Awesome answer. Great for church, too. Okay, what else? Faith. What? Planning. Planning. Faith, I heard. What else? Perseverance. Perseverance, absolutely. Health. Did somebody say health? Very good. I like health. All right. How about money? Money always helps. Money makes life easier, right? Sort of. Okay. So there's a lot of things that we put in. Now today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at an equation that Jesus gave us for getting ahead in life. And this is going to astound you. One is that he'd have an equation. That's already weird. But this equation, the content of it, I'm just guaranteeing you, you would never come up with. You would never guess it. It is so counterintuitive. It is so countercultural to where we live. It goes so much against conventional wisdom that you're just going to be like, what? But Jesus is pretty compelling 
as he teaches us. And here's what he does. He gives us two stories in the book of Matthew. Matthew 19 is where the first story is told. You can open it up. It's the story of the rich young ruler. You can find that in there. If you don't have a Bible, it's too late. Our ushers are down. You're going to have to just do the best you can. But let me encourage you. Bring your Bibles, okay? Because I'm not even going to put everything up on the screen. And it is great if you actually are looking at your Bibles and you can mark your Bibles. Okay, so here's the thing. Jesus gives two stories. The first story is about a rich young ruler. We're told that he's rich young ruler in all three of the Gospels that tell this story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story. They give us different details. But from the details, we get that he's a young guy, sort of on the fast track, that he's a wealthy guy, um, that he is a leader, probably a leader of a synagogue. And so he has some status because of his leadership. And then we have one more ingredient, and that is that uh, he keeps the law really well. And in a Jewish culture, the people that could keep God's law rose to the top. This guy is sort of like uh, 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 Bill Gates and Billy Graham, sort of the cross between Bill Gates and Billy Graham. He's very successful in culture. He's very successful with God. Anyone would look at this guy and say, this guy knows how to get ahead. There is absolutely no question. This guy knows how to get ahead. And so um, I want to start reading in verse 21. In verse 21, uh, Jesus basically has sort of an interaction. And here's the reason for the interaction. It's because in our world, the way the math works is the person that can one-up someone else is the winner. The one-up, the one-upper always beats the person that they one-up on, right? And so uh, I heard a story about something that happened at Bellaterra over the Christmas season, and there was this older woman that was driving uh, her big car, and she was waiting for a parking spot, and just as somebody pulled out and the parking spot was open, uh, this younger woman, uh, cute thing, in a little red sports car pulled right into the slot in front of her. And so the older lady rolled down her window, uh, pushed down her window, rather, and uh, just said, hey, I was waiting for that space. And the younger girl just said, too bad, honey. I'm young and I'm fast. And so uh, the woman sits there and digests that for a second. And then she puts her car in gear and floors it right into the back of her car, the red car, and slams into it. And the, the woman is just looking at, what are you doing to my car? And she goes, too bad, honey. I'm old, rich, and have has blessed that life. And that spills over to what we think is anybody who's a front runner, anybody that's sort of pulled it together and would be who we would consider on the top of the class. We would say, well, obviously God has blessed that person. God is pleased with that person. That person has a special, more intimate relationship with God in some way because look at the blessing that God is pouring out. And that was conventional wisdom for the Jews back in that day. That is the way that they thought. It is the way evangelicals very often think. We think that way in our culture. It is great to love God. It is greater to love God and be successful, right? That's sort of how we, those are the people that speak in our churches. And those are the people that we highlight. And we say, here's a, you know, here's a president. Here's, and he's a Christian too, Tim Tebow, who is an awesome guy. But, you know, we love him even more because of his success, uh, not counting what happened last night. Um, so... Anyway, that's kind of how we look. And Jesus looks and he sees it from a different perspective. And this is so, so critical to understand because Jesus looks at this young guy and he says, you know what? You have got something blocking you 
from intimacy with God. And you came to me and asked me if I could help you, and I can help you. Jesus looks at him. It says, Jesus in Mark, it says, Jesus looked at him in love. He's not trying to sort of put this guy through a test. He's not sort of like, well, I'll show this rich guy who's boss. That's not his attitude. His attitude is, he wants something more? I'll tell him exactly how to get something more. Go sell your possessions. Give it to the poor. Leave the life that you've been living and follow me. That is what's going to do it. That is what's going to lead you to this, this void you still feel in your life. That's where the void can be filled. That's what Jesus says to this guy. But for the people watching this unfold, they would have said, I'm just not getting this. Jesus, why wouldn't you make it as easy as possible for this guy to follow you? He's got resources. He's got leverage. He can really help us get this movement thing going. Why are you putting him in a place where it's almost impossible for him to follow? And the reason for it is because Jesus says, because it is more important that you understand how God's kingdom works than that we get this guy in uh, just from kind of a worldly perspective to get things going. Goes on to say that Jesus then teaches them about how difficult it is for people that have wealth to get into the kingdom of God. In fact, he uses a little metaphor. He says it's more difficult for a camel to go through what? An eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom of God. What a weird statement. And it's a convicting statement because every person in this room, almost every person that lives around in Huntington Beach would be considered that wealthy person just so you know, because that was an impoverished nation. It was like Haiti. And so people that had a place to sleep at night and food that they knew they could eat, some kind of transportation, those kinds of things, that made you wealthy. So this is a very convicting statement, and it's important that we get it right. So Jesus says, listen, it's harder for somebody. Now here's the reason. It isn't, just so that we're super clear, it's not that money is bad. There are plenty of places in Scripture where money is not taught as being bad. In fact, that it can be good. The problem is, here's the problem, it gives us the mentality of the front runner. And Jesus says, now that mentality is dangerous. That mentality can be lethal. If your attitude is, I can do it on my own. I can pull it together. I can make things happen. I don't need God. Here's all I need from God. If God is just fair with me, if he just gives me my due, I am great. I am good. I know there's other people that need a lot more than I need, but all I need is for God to be fair. And Jesus says, man, if you come in with that mentality, you need to understand what a dangerous place you're in. You are standing on the edge of a 10,000 foot cliff and you're about to fall off. And here's the problem. You don't even know it. You don't even know how bad it is for you. That's the point that's being made. And it, it really hit the disciples. So Peter gets up, and he, as, as Peter only can do, if you guys are familiar with Peter, Peter always says kind of the wrong thing. Um, and so here he says this, because Peter's a little outraged about this. He's like, okay, if that guy isn't on the winning track, 
then clearly we're on the winning track and because Peter says this. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. Sort of like, I want my brownie points here. I want the gold star. Okay, that guy's the loser. Fine. We have left everything to follow you. And uh, Jesus says, uh, and then he says, what then will there be for us? So tell me what our payoff is going to be. And then Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, and those who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, this is a specific statement for the 12 disciples, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, whoa, this is going to be pretty cool. But it happens at the end of time. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or fields for my sake then here's the really interesting thing. We'll receive <clears throat> hundred times as much uh, and will inherit eternal life. And actually, the better translation, a hundred times as much in this life and the life to come. In other words, this isn't just a future promise. What Jesus says is abundant life for the next however long you've got on this earth plus eternal life is all measured by what you give away. If you really want God's blessing and you're a front runner, your option is to give things away. And that is countercultural, I know, but actually, if you think about it, you'll realize there is definitely some truth to that statement, right? Uh, when I was getting ready to go to Haiti, so it was on, we left on January 2nd. My sons, who we only see twice a year, were visiting with us. They were still in town and were going to be for two more days. I had not figured that out when I had said yes to the Haiti trip. So I was bummed about leaving them. I was tired out from just the whole Christmas stuff that was happening. Uh, Some of you know there was a lot going on in our church at that point. And so there was just, I was not rested. And I looked at Haiti and I was like, oh my gosh, is that the one thing in my life I do not want to do? But I'd committed to go. And so, you know, sort of reluctantly I'm getting on the plane just thinking, you know, it's only going to be a week. I'll be back. Uh, I was hoping I'd be back. And uh, so anyway, we fly down there and we spend the week there. And the week really was a week of giving ourselves away. I mean, we were in hot places. We were working with a lot of people. Uh, We were doing the VBS. I did the VBS thing. Uh, Those kids there hardly ever see white people. So hair on the arms is like a total treat. And I have none left because they pull all the hair on your arms or the hair on your legs. You're constantly being pulled. They love, I don't know why, lots of them don't have hair, but for some reason a white scalp is more cool than a black scalp, so they're rubbing my head all the time. I actually feel neglected. Nobody around here rubs my head. Uh, They were loving on me that way. Um, I spent time with this team of people from Mariners and just, you know, of course, anything you do in a team like that just builds you up. You get energized from that. Made a great relationship with the pastor down there, Samuel, who you will meet because he's becoming a friend of ours and a friend of mine and we're spending time together. He is an awesome, awesome guy. That was super cool. And I got a cool mission for our church to be engaged with in Haiti. So on the plane coming back, I was not less energized or exhausted or like, oh my gosh, give me a month of vacation now. I was stoked. And it was this principle. And, you know, it has nothing to do with me because I went so reluctantly. It's this principle. When you give yourself away, when you serve, when you're generous, when you do things for the sake of God's kingdom, God says, listen, I don't sit idly by and just sort of say, well, good for you. I am at work, and part of the work is you get a return. There is stuff I build into your life. 
I make you a different person. You were made for this. That's what God says. You were made to do this. Don't you understand that when you give yourself away, now sitting back and being entitled and being a front runner and being super independent and I'll do my own thing and all I need from God is fairness, what God says is you're not wired for that. It will make you selfish and self-absorbed. It will drain your energy. It will make you feel like your life is meaningless. But when you give your life away, oh my, oh my, what that does. And it all drives to this equation that Jesus is going to give you. And I want to tell you the equation, but before I do it, I want to set it up with a story. Jairus and I uh, were in a place where we were having dessert, and we had to get up in line to get the desserts. And so realizing Jairus and his appetite, I made sure to get in front of him to get the dessert in line. But as we were coming up, we were the last two people in line, and I realized that there was not enough dessert for everyone. It's sort of a Haiti thing again. We were one dessert short. And I was thinking, you know, if I get up to that table first, being a pastor and such a godly man that I am, I can't possibly take the last dessert. And so I pretended to have an untied shoe to tie my shoe and let Jairus go in front of me, realizing, of course, he is a worship pastor and a pretty godly guy, and he's going to be in this dilemma now of having to give me the dessert. So we get up to the front of the table, and Jairus sees it, looks back at me. I'm sitting there with a smug smile on my face, just like handed over. And uh, he picks it up, looks at me, and walks off with the dessert and starts eating it. <laughs> and, uh, and I run up to him, and I go, Jairus, this is like totally bumming me out. I just thought you were a different kind of man than this. Uh, what are you doing eating the dessert? And he said, Kevin, you know, I was thinking, if you were in front of me, what would you have done? I said, I would have given you the dessert. He goes, exactly. So we're both getting exactly what we want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And here's the principle that we were struggling with. Here's the principle we're struggling with. And this is what Jesus is going to point out. He says in Matthew 19.30, let's read it together. We'll bring it up on the stage. It says, but many, we're reading this together. Here we go. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And here's the equation that Jesus is giving. First equals last. First equals last. If you strive to be first, you're going to wind up as last. Now, whenever a phrase is given, because in the Greek, there's no punctuation, there's no way to highlight something, they do it in word order. So it does go on to say, and the last will be first, but it's always the first phrase that is the emphasis. And of course that's the emphasis here, because Jesus has just rehearsed, or Matthew is telling us a story, but Matthew has just told us a story about this guy who was first, who came to Jesus, and because he was not willing to let go of his firstness, because he was not willing to give things away, he was not willing to serve, he was not willing to walk away from certain things, what Jesus is going to say, that guy ends up not being first, but being last. And that's one of the equations. We need to know that. We, I need to know that. You need to know that. That works so against us. Our whole life, we're told, you need to be first. This week I was in a meeting, and the meeting was not going the way I wanted to. And I wasn't leading the meeting, so I couldn't do anything about it, except I could sit there and sulk. And that is what I did. 
friends, there is nobody better at that than me. I'm a great powder. And I sat back, but sort of, you know, I engaged enough so that people sort of thought, okay, he's not being a total brat. But anyone could have told, Kevin's not liking what's happening. The next day, I'm working on this message, and I look at this thing, and I'm just like, ah, I completely violated this thought. I was not willing to give up my opinions, what I thought were my rights in that meeting, the things that I thought were important, I sat there and sulked because I didn't want to give it away. And the thing that is brutal to hear is Jesus says, Kevin, you want to hold on to that first place? In the end, you'll be last. That's just what you need to know. It's the way things work in my kingdom. You want to hold on to first? You don't want to serve? You don't want to give things away? You don't want to put yourself second? You don't want to be humble? Fine. You will be humble. I'll make sure you're humble at a point. You will be last. So here's the point. You and I can either volunteer to do it, or God will just do it for us. He has no problem throwing us into last position. The great thing is when we volunteer to do it, he says, hundredfold. Hundredfold. You willing to do that? I'll give you a hundredfold. That is the way it works in my kingdom. So the question is, who has God put in your life to serve? You know what? There's somebody that comes into your mind. Maybe it's the person you're married to. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's your parent. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's the guy that hangs out on the corner who's homeless. Who is the person in your life that God said, I want you to serve that person? I know it's not what first place people do, but it's how it works in my kingdom. It's how my equations work. It is the radical grace of God. Where are you to give? Where are you to give? I know your money is hard-earned. I know you could spend every dime and more. But God says, give it away. I don't want you to spend it all on yourself. You give it away. Where does he say you need to give it? Where do you need to be generous? Listen, you can volunteer for it, or God is perfectly capable of taking it away. But his principle is first equals last. You feel super comfortable in the first position? You know where you're going to end up. But if you give it away, hundredfold. All right, cool principle. We need to jam because I want to give you the second principle on this because it sort of ties together with it. Second story is told at the beginning of Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. By the way, James 4.10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up, is a great principle for us as we strive to give away first place. Now, here's the truth about a parable. A parable is a word picture about God's kingdom. In other words, Jesus tells a story, usually to make one point. Sometimes there's more, but there's usually one big point, and almost always there's a surprise in a parable. Jesus did this because he wanted people to remember the truth that he was giving, and he said in story form it would be better. So he tells a story. He says in verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven, the way God's system works, that's kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is the same thing, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, let me tell you a couple things. This is an unusual story because landowners that were wealthy enough to hire people to work in their vineyard never went out and did the work. They always had an estate manager that would do it. So this, all, all of a sudden, people listening to the story goes, well, that's weird. I don't know too many Bill Gates around that are hiring the clerks that are working in their company. That isn't what Bill Gates does. The reason for it is because Jesus needs to make really clear what this is an illustration of. 
The landowner in this parable represents who? You're going to get it. You're in church. God. All right. Yeah, it represents God. That's the reason it's the landowner and not the estate manager or anything like that. Because Jesus wants to make the point, hey, this is a parable about how God treats us or treats his workers. Okay, so that's the point there. Um, He goes out early in the morning. We know that their workday started at 6 a.m., so it is early. And we also know this. The people he's going out to hire are the best and the brightest, just like our setup crew here, right? You guys that are on the setup crew, you are the best and the brightest. You start at 6 in the morning on a Sunday. We love you. We couldn't do it without you. There you go. But we can't give you a denarius. I'm sorry. A denarius was the wage that you paid typically for a manual worker for a day's work. So there was sort of a set price. Everybody knew that that's what you would get. Uh, In verse 3, it says, About nine in the morning, he, meaning the landowner, went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. They went out again about, he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And then it says, at five in the afternoon, this is on the screen, about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? And they say, because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So here's really an interesting thing. What happens is you're working in an impoverished country, and so he goes out, and at 9 o'clock he decides he wants more workers, and then he does that throughout the day. Finally, he goes out at 5 o'clock. That's one hour before quitting time at 6 p.m., and he says, all right, I'm going to hire some more people. The implication here, he never promises a denarius, right? He never promises a certain amount of money. He just says, I'll pay you what's right. And they would have all said, well, it will be a percentage based on how long we've worked. Of course, that would be fair, and that's what we could expect. Now, one thing that is super interesting about this is that uh, we know this from the way this story concludes. The landowner is not dumb. And if you think that the reason he keeps going out is because he's miscalculated, At the beginning of the day, he didn't realize how many workers he needed, and he started to panic, and finally panicked so much at 5 o'clock, he even pulled people in at 5. You don't understand the story, because that's not the point. The point is the landowner is going out recognizing that there are people out there out of work, and they need work. They won't eat tonight without work. And so he keeps going out, and he keeps inviting more in, because that's his heart. His heart is to love the workers. That's his heart. Nobody gets that at first. It comes clear as the parable winds down. So here's what happens. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. Now this is so key. Beginning with the last ones hired and uh, then going on to the first. And this is a major, major point, because here's what would happen. Let's say that he first pulls in the guys that started working at 6 a.m., gives them their denarius, and then what do they do at that point? They leave. They never had to know what Jesus was going to, or what the landowner was going to do with the rest of the workers. The landowner could have avoided all kinds of tension and trouble by just paying the first workers first. But he doesn't, because he wants the tension. He wants the argument. He's like, you don't have the guts to call me out on this. And so he's going to set up a very tense 
situation. And he wants it because he's making a point. It says, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius, a full day's pay. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected, of course, what would you expect? If you're going to pay the guy that worked one hour a full day's wage, what are you going to get if you worked all day? More, of course. And does he do it? No. He gives them a denarius. And if you were that person, how would you feel? Honestly. Ripped off. Crud. I could have hung out till 5 o'clock and got the denarius. So they grumble. And they come back at this guy and they say, this is not fair. This is not fair. And the landowner has the greatest answer. Is it fair? Let me just ask you. Was it fair? How many would say, yes, that is fair? How many would say, no, that is not fair? Okay, you're both right. Isn't that so great when I do something? Nobody's going to look dumb here. Here's the deal. It is fair with the full-day worker, right? Full-day worker, how much was the full-day worker promised? Denarius. How much did the full-day worker get? Is that fair? Is that the going rate? Can anybody argue that they were treated unfairly? No, they shouldn't be able to. Who is treated unfairly? The one who came at 5 o'clock. That's not fair. You get a full day's pay for one hour of work? That's not fair. That's called generous grace. That's called getting something you don't deserve. And here's the point the landowner makes. He goes, he goes, I'm totally fair with you, so don't tell me I'm not being fair with you. If anyone wants to argue about fairness, the five-hour worker can, can, can come up and say, you weren't fair with me. I don't deserve all that money. Take 11 twelfths of it back. That would be fair. But of course, we never do it because we love generosity. But here, here's the point. Generosity is never fair. That's why it's generous. Those kids that held up their food after we had given them their food, was that fair to them? No, it wasn't fair to come in and take their food. It was generous. It was generous of them to do that. Here's the point. If you ever work with the assumption in God's kingdom that things work on fairness, you're in huge trouble. Let me explain why you're in huge trouble. If God is totally fair with me, and totally fair with you. If we say, all I need is fairness from you, God. I don't need anything else. Just treat me as I deserve. What is going to happen to us? Where are we going to land? Say it. You know. Where do you land? If God's going to be totally fair with a sinful, selfish, rebellious guy like me, where in the end do I land if he's going to be fair? I'm going to land in hell. And you know what? I'm going to land in this world without him being involved in my life at all. That is fair. Protect us ever from thinking that we want fairness from God. We don't want fairness. We want grace. We need grace. We need him to be generous. We must have that or we cannot function. Our whole relationship with God is never based on fairness. This is such an important point that Jesus makes here and he makes over and over again. If you want fairness, don't come to God. If you think you can handle fairness, you won't come to God. 
You must have his generosity. Here's the deal. You know what? Who are the five o'clock workers in this parable? It's us. We're the five o'clock workers. There's nobody here that is a 6 a.m. worker in the parable. Some of you are because you're on the setup team. But in the parable, <laughs> in the parable, none of us have earned our right due from God and would feel satisfied with it. We are all the five o'clock worker. And it drives Jesus then to make a second point that is very similar to the first point, but has some differences. He says in Matthew 20, 16, he says, so the last, here, let's read it together. Let's read, we're this again, group participation. We're almost done. Say it with gusto and we'll all go out to lunch after this. Here we go. So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, what's the difference between that phrase and the phrase we saw a few verses ago? What? Emphasis and we have reversed it, right? Remember in the first one, it was the first will be last and then you finish it. This one is the last will be. Why does he do that? Well, because in chapter 19, what's the illustration? The illustration is of a first guy that is getting last, right? That's what that story's about. What's the story this story about? It's about the last workers getting first. They get paid first. They get the gift. They get more than they deserve. Last get first. And so here's the principle. Jesus says there's a principle. If you're going to cling to firstness, if you want to be a front runner, if you want to get what you deserve from God, here's what you need to know. The equation, the way it works in the God of in kingdom, the kingdom of God, is first equals last. That's where you're going to wind up. You need to know that. If you're willing to put yourself last, you'll get a hundredfold increase. The story here is, if you are last, it's God's choice to make you first. And if you look through the scripture, if you look in the Old Testament, the New Testament, if you look at a hundred different illustrations, there are so many illustrations that we would spend you know, hours going through all of the illustrations where God illustrates the principle, those of you who thought you were last, those of you who thought you were disqualified, those of you that thought you had such a sinful life God would never smile on you, those of you who thought and live with guilt racked, I am nothing, I'm undeserving, I'm unworthy, God would never come to me if there were applications open for heaven, God wouldn't even give me an application form because I'm such a wretched person. There are so many examples in the Bible of those people being lifted up by God and saying, but you're first to me. You are first to me. And remember one day when Jesus was accused by the religious leaders, he said, you're just hanging out with those sinners and prostitutes and those creepy people and tax collectors and all the goofy people. And Jesus looks straight at them and he says, that's right, because you know what I've learned? The healthy don't need a doctor. Those who are sick need a doctor. And I have come to seek and save the lost. And it is a good thing. Because that's exactly who we are. We may not think it. We may not think it compared to other people we see out there. But that's exactly the truth. So here's the question. What equation do you work with? You're going to work the way God works. You're going to work with the equation Jesus says. The first will be last. 
you and I, as we cling to our firstness, just need to remember, if at the longer we cling, the more certain one thing's going to happen, and that is we are going to land in last. Now, if we willingly give it up, great promise, how many fold? Hundredfold. God says, I'll bless you. You purposely put yourself last. You purposely serve. You purposely give. You purposely humble yourself. You purposely let go of your agenda. You purposely do those things. I'm just telling you the way that washes eventually hundredfold in this life and the life to come. If you are last and you thought there is no way, there is no way God could ever embrace me, you just need to know that the striking theme of the whole Bible is I love those in last. And if you're sitting here today and maybe you feel like it isn't, you just feel like you can't let God close to you because if he was close to you, he would just vomit. You need to understand this truth. Last equals first. Last equals first. He loves you. He wants you. He wants to adopt you. If you've never come to Jesus, today's your day to do it. You can just say, hey, I'm one of those last people. Embrace me. Embrace me, God. And you know what? He will, based on Jesus' death on the cross for you. He'll say, I forgive you. You're in. I don't just forgive you. I'm adopting you. You're in my family. If you've already done that work, but you still live, you feel like you're the second-class citizen, second-class Christian. Nobody else is as bad off as I am. Nobody else is messed up as much as me. I want to tell you, our church, Huntington Beach, Mariner's Church, we are a place for those of you in last place. And you know why? Because that's where I am. I don't like to think of myself that way. That's where I am. We are a church for those of us in last place. That's who we're going to be. Would you bow your head and close your eyes and just put out your hands like this. I want to pray. Put out your hands like this. Jesus, as we sit here and we think about these truths, these new math equations, a radical math of grace, we recognize that I recognize I don't live this way. That's not the way that I am. And I pray that you'd give me your perspective and your humility. In places where I come out first, Lord, help me to serve and to give. Remind me to be humble and trust you with the return. Lord, in places where I feel humiliated and ashamed, in places where I've messed up and I feel worthless or I will never succeed, Remind me that you lift me into first place. It's what you do. You love me beyond imagination. You give me a purpose that only I can do. Thank you so much that we work, Jesus, according to your math. Help us to be people this week that go out with these truths just etched in our mind, determined to live them in our day-to-day life. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.